My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On today's episode, I talk to Cole Porter from the Deck of DM Things, and we talk about a lot of things on the episode. So here are some of the highlights. There's a little bit of DM prep and how to handle freedom with players, especially in a homebrew setting. We talk about some various homebrew monsters and encounters, and a training montage scene for some characters that are going to be going up against a god. Along the way, we also talk a little bit about TikTok and the D&D and TTRPG community over there dice statistics, and we even mention and touch on the Mistborn series of fantasy novels by Brandon Sanderson. Um, At the time of recording this episode, I had not started reading those books. I am now partway through the first Mistborn book, so I'll leave a link to that if anybody is interested. Um, Absolutely a fantastic resource for D&D or TTRPG ideas for a fantasy game. If you'd like to help us make more content, consider joining the Patreon. You can also bookmark our affiliate links to Amazon and DriveThruRPG to support the show with each purchase. Want a free way to help the show? Give it a review on your favorite podcast platform, or like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Finally, if you'd like to be on the show, or think you know a great guest, contact me on the Discord server or on Twitter. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Welcome, everybody. Today I have Cole Porter of the Deck of DM Things. Welcome, Cole. Hello. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Cole, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in the tabletop role-playing space? Oh, yeah. I'd be be happy to, for sure. So I've actually only been playing tabletop role-playing games probably for the last three or four years. And it's something I'd always been interested in. And a lot of my Friends who, you know, like me were into like the fantasy and into all the nerdy stuff. When we were in high school and college, we always thought, you know, D&D, for example, would be such a fun thing to do. But we always viewed it as kind of mystic, almost like we needed someone to guide us on the journey in, which you know, a lot of times is true. But we didn't know anyone who played already and we were too intimidated to start playing it on our own. So we just kind of let it be. And then after I graduated from college, I started working at a distillery and cocktail bar here in Nashville. And some of my coworkers were playing and they were nice enough to invite me to join them. And that was my first kind of foray into, into D&D. And pretty classic D&D, I guess, introduction is we joined this group that was just a hodgepodge of these different social groups. And... We played one or two sessions. We, there's a mix of me who has never been never played before at all. A couple of guys who've been playing their entire life. You know everything in between. So the party was kind of, I'm sure, on the outside, really funny to watch because it was such a spread of experience levels. You know, but within two sessions, the DM had to quit because he had other commitments in his life, and so the group kind of went to the wind. And a couple of us who worked together just decided to start our own group. And of the, I think, four of us that ended up doing that, we had between us maybe a total of like four months of, <laughs> of D&D experience. So it was really the blind leading the blind in many ways. But it gave me the taste that I needed to like understand, okay, so this is a really great outlet and a really fun creative, you know, place to channel creative energy. And uh, so that was my first real foray into it. And it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, and I'm guessing that was 5th edition D&D that you started with? Yeah, that's correct. It was 5th edition, thank God. Yeah, we, <laughs> we started... <laughs> I feel like if it had been another edition, I may have been almost too intimidated at the time. But yeah, we started with, with 5e, and I remember that being my biggest roadblock was just like grasping the rules. And I think that's true for you know a lot of people. But once it kind of clicked with me and I understood how the game was supposed to run... Because I think part of me was going from the world of playing video games for most of my life, where I didn't understand the full autonomy that I had at first. When I kind of crossed that threshold, that's when, you know, I think with a lot of people, that's when you start to understand the point of it all. And then did you become the DM of that group or did you did somebody else kind of take up the reins? So that initial kind of schism, I guess, or not schism is a very aggressive word. The, the initial diaspora where everyone went their separate ways. That first group I fell into, I was just a player. I played a wild magic sorcerer, a lot of fun, 
it was a bit ambitious going with the spellcaster, but I'm glad I did it. And then after we we just we just were playing the Lost Mines of Fen Delver, I believe. Classic, you know, starter. And so we we ran through that with one of my friends and coworkers who was the DM. And then by the time we finished doing that campaign, I had already roped some of my other friends into playing and I started DMing for them. So I kind of I started DMing for people who had never played before, and then with this other group, who was my first experience playing, I eventually took over as DM for them. And so within a couple, I'd say within six months of me starting to play, I was ended up DMing for two different groups. And you know, of course, that was the beginning of my career as a forever DM because I had <laughs> the ratio of hours DM'd to hours played is astronomical. But yeah. so it goes. What was that transition like moving from player to dungeon master? For me, it was it was exciting and kind of liberating. Yeah, there are certain I, I think I imagine everyone has this experience where whether you're playing or DMing or, or whatever it may be, but especially for players, you know, that's one of the things that makes one of the things that makes DMing so difficult is that everyone wants the game to go a certain way and you have to kind of be the peacekeeper and the moderator. And so for me, when I started DMing, it was it was liberating because it was an opportunity for me to make the game that I wanted to play. And while at the same time, of course, trying to make the game that my players wanted to play as well, it was definitely a difficult transition simply because the people I was playing with being inexperienced were asking me all the questions. And me being also not that experienced at the time, was having to figure out the answers to all of those, which was a great way, a great crash course for for learning the the rules for for fifth edition. But it, it's where I, looking back at my first games that I ran, there were so many things I did wrong, but we still had a great time. But it, it was a really good learning experience for sure. So what I'm hearing from you, maybe tips for an aspiring DM that's unsure if they should start, is to just jump in and and figure it out along the way. I, I think that is absolutely true because with that first group I talked about, or the first group that actually lasted, our, our DM in that group, my first DM, and he's actually full circle. We're I've just started recently playing in one of his games again in the last couple of months, and we have his DM since that first group. But anyway, when he was running our game, you know, again, he was very inexperienced, and there were a lot of rules that none of us knew, including him. But we still had a great time, and that's ultimately the point, you know, of D and D is to kind of have that escape be able to play and enjoy it with your friends and, and kind of drive that narrative together. And that's something we were able to do, even though, you know, like as crazy as it sounds, we didn't understand what armor class was when we first started playing. And so we were just, we were making up so many rules as we were playing, but still, you know, to answer your question more directly, absolutely. I think if you think you want to DM, if people who want to play and you have a potential group and you're the only one who feels like they can step up to the plate to run that game, Run that game, do it. You know, there's a lot of resources to make make it easy for you. YouTube videos, blog posts, you know, all of that. But ultimately, you know, diving in and actually getting your your feet wet is the easiest and most fun way to, to learn what you need to learn to run a good game and have a good time. And when you've run games, has have you leaned more into modules or homebrew? So I was immediately so I, I did run one module. I also ran right after I finished playing in the Lost Minds module, I ran that one for my friends who had never played before. That was my first real-time DMing. And for my friends, it was their first real-time playing. So I wanted it to be a structured, you know, regulated environment and story. But after that, I I never did another published module again. I, I'm planning on getting into the Tomb of Annihilation and Curse of Strahd and all that soon with one of my home home groups. But since then, I've been doing everything homebrew. The reason for that is I always felt a little restricted by the published content where, you know, there's information that you need to know as a DM and it's in the book, but I always prefer to be able to pull that information out of my own head instead of reading it from the page. And of course, it's a double-edged sword, but I, I've always gravitated towards homebrew settings and homebrew plots. Right, and being able to just make a decision and not worry too much about if that's going to break something later down the line. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think that is probably one of the main concessions of running a module is 
not always feeling like you have full ownership of of what happens. I mean, obviously you you can you do whatever you want with it, but it is does sometimes feel more constraining in that way. Yeah, and it's when you run those modules, you know, you you take liberties as a DM, but if you take too much liberty and you you make too many decisions that aren't really supported by the source material, you eventually find yourself in a place where you can't use it as much as you need to, and you end up kind of converting it to a homebrew environment. And then things get a bit weird and messy from there, I feel like. But I, I think it's it's kind of a separate set of skills for a dungeon master, and I think it's equally important is to be able to run you know, a, a module versus homebrew. One's more improv heavy, one's more prep heavy, but it's, it's both, they're both skills that you need to have. And I've definitely, myself, have leaned more towards that improv, that, that ideation side. But what I'm planning on and hoping to do more of is more of that prep, more of that immersing myself into someone else's world while also running the game. And what does your current prep look like for, like, if you're just getting ready for a session, what does that look like? Yeah, so over my career DMing, I've, I kind of visualized it almost like a, a regression to the mean, where I've had some periods of time where I do certainly too much prep, almost like to the point where it gets too rigid. And then, of course, I've had times where I've done little to no prep and where it's, it's too loose. And both of those come with big consequences. And so I, I've lately, in the last year or so, my prep has kind of come down a lot to where my players are at the time that we left off. And so what I'll typically go through the process for me is I'll usually spend an hour or two if I have it, depending on the length of the session that we're planning on playing. But I'll sit down and look at the notes from, we actually, in, in our home game, we record our sessions. So it's easier to look, you know, listen back and remember what's going on. But I'll look back, see where my players are, what their current goals are, what in their last thoughts in the last game, like what were they actively working towards? Because I want there to be a sense of continuity from session to session. And I've been really striving on making sure there's an overarching kind of goal for the players to have, should they choose to have one. That being said, you know, wherever they are at the time, setting-wise, you know, physically, I want to make sure I have things prepared to guide them towards that goal, should they choose to follow that. And just it's just a lot of brainstorming really at first and then it's finding the mechanical pieces and the stat blocks and things that i can integrate into the game that will make all of that very tangible so like in right now you know we're hopefully playing next week we've had a the curse of the conflicting schedules lately but we're planning on playing with this it's a different group than the ones i've talked about but we're planning on playing hopefully next week and right now we had to, we had to leave off our last session in the middle of a big boss fight, which is always frustrating. But my prep right now is like, of course, their current goal is to beat the boss. But once they do, if they do, what is, what is it going to, going to, excuse me, if they beat the boss, what is going to be their next goal based on where they are? And kind of planning those out, thinking them through and having an actual, actual environments for them to go to and people to interact with. And sort of having that written out for myself so that I don't spend too much time hemming and hawing when it comes to the actual session and we get some efficient gameplay in that feels prepared and real for the players. <laughs> so you'd like to kind of take a look at like where the players are going immediately and then prep for that set of encounters. It, that's exactly right. Because an issue I've had before is that you know, there's always, I don't say always, but for a lot of the times there are these moments and there are these meetings and these encounters that you always look forward to having, but they're not anywhere near or not near enough in the future, at least for the players to actually engage with. And if you spend too much time fixating on those things happening, you end up railroading the characters a lot. And I can keep them in my back pocket as ideas to bring forth, but what I really need to do is pay attention as much as possible to the here and now and the near future in that game. And that way there's not a lot of Kind of skipping ahead there's not a lot of filler i can have engaging content ready that can still guide them towards their goal or towards somewhere that i think they should be but that is also you know fun and relevant and you know makes sense narratively and otherwise that is actually similar or very similar to how i like to prep is to kind of have an idea and not prep too much really outside of that then when you're 
going through with your players, do you, do you give them a lot of choice in kind of what they get to decide to do next? Yeah. So I think it depends a lot on the campaign that I'm running. This most recent campaign has been on a more of an epic scale and loving them up faster and they're fighting gods and you know, <laughs> just all that classic stuff. But with those, what I've basically been doing is kind of building up this, I guess I should say familiarity with these different areas and different people. And as we've played, the players have begun to interact with all of them explore these places and understand the dynamics between them to the point now where as the game progresses, if they have a goal in mind, they know that they have different ways of accomplishing it. And so it's, I try not to always present it as, oh, you can go left down this road or right down this road. You know, it's more of, okay, you want to, you know, converse with this devil well, you know, you can talk to the sage that you met here, or you can commune with your warlock's patron and kind of have them connect you. you know, they start to understand the interconnectivity of the world that they're in and you know, try, to, try to forge their own path there. But when I can tell that there's going to be a bit of a stall, if I can tell that you know, the direction is unclear or things are arbitrary, then I will usually start to come through and make clear to them that they have a couple of real avenues to follow and kind of present those as a as escape for them. Sure. So they have freedom in the story. And like you said, you give them multiple avenues to approach any given problem or situation. But then once you kind of have the direction from them for like the next session, then you know, okay, we're, I'm prepping in this direction and I'm not going to necessarily worry about all of the other that they have that yeah that's exactly right and that that's actually there was a time i was running another game for a different group and i was in my head i was convinced that this group was going to follow this one trail or not not physical trail but follow this one lead and i had prepped that entire session assuming they would follow that lead and they did they did no such thing they went completely <laughs> away from that they briefly, I think they may have mentioned it, but they were so fixated on this other thing I had mentioned before. And it led to a, a whole session where I was just improving the, the entire time, which was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. It was a learning, it was a lesson for me that I always wanted to be pretty confident that I, I know where they're going before I start prepping too far out. Kind of like you were saying, keeping it relatively close prep-wise to, to the radius around where they are. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We're, we're very similar in that regard. Yeah. I know that you have a channel of sorts. I found you on TikTok. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about your TikTok and any other channels that you have? Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd be happy to. Yeah, so I have a TikTok account on, of course, on TikTok. I go by, the handle is deck of DM things. And instead of spaces, they're underscores. So deck underscore of underscore DM underscore things. But I made that channel a couple of years ago, and it was uh, intended just to be a D&D &D channel where I would, I would make content about Dungeons and Dragons. I would you know, give player and DM advice, I would share D&D &D stories, and talk about magic items and all those kind of things. And that's what I did for a while. The interesting thing about my channel, and I think you can relate to this experience pretty well, knowing your channel on TikTok as well, <laughs> but I, I stumbled upon a kind of, a, I guess, a viral series of videos that I did. Jeez, it's been a while now. I, I was doing it, I want to say in 2020, early 2020. Yeah. Or mid 2020 is during the pandemic anyway i yeah i had this this series where you know i on one video i decided to show off this 100 sided die that i had and i was like let's just make it a game you know, i'll roll the die and if it rolls i'll roll its die every day and if it rolls one i'm going to destroy the die if it rolls on a 100 i'll send it off to someone else you know and people I've, I've come to find really love gambling essentially on TikTok and videos <laughs> that have a, have a chance and they can get invested in. People are all about that. It's definitely like, it's, it's definitely the social media version of going to the casino. There's no stakes. No one's going to win anything, but they just like watching the numbers roll. So anyway, I, I did that series for about three months, I want to say, and that garnered me a ton of followers. I'm currently sitting at 
265,000, I think, at the time of this recording. But I would say at least, you know, 150 to 200,000 of those came originally from that series, which was a lot of fun. But anyway, now I've, I've kind of rebuilt my audience a bit away from that so that I could focus more on the original purpose, which was making Dungeons & Dragons related content. So I, I do all that on there now. I do a bit different content than a lot of D&D creators do, I think, at least on TikTok. I've sort of tailored my content, my D&D content on TikTok to fit kind of the, the TikTok formula, I guess, which it has to be fast and snappy and short. You know, it, there's things that are great for YouTube. There's things that are great for TikTok. And, you know, I found that the stuff I wanted to do right down the road, or excuse me, right down the middle, didn't really fit on TikTok very well because I wanted to do longer format stuff. So I've kind of, anyway, I guess what I'm trying to get to is I do D&D and D&D adjacent stuff on TikTok. I do, you know, DIY series and how to make different D&D related stuff like DM screens and miniatures. I like to get nerdy and talk about the statistics of different dice, why we use them, how they work. And then I do a lot of D&D product reviews and things like that as well. And kind of sharing and reviewing different D&D products that I've come across or had sent to me by companies or whatever it may be. And uh, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And I've been playing around some other kind of callbacks to that D100 series, doing like a tournament with D20s, then this rolling off and seeing who will win. People love that still, back to the, the gambling thing. But I also just, and I mean like last week, just started a YouTube channel as well. That is still Deck of DM Things. It's still kind of that brand, but I'm going to be making much more gameplay-focused content, more along the lines of what we've been talking about here, you know, uh, game tips, Dungeon Master advice, but also, you know, homebrewing weapons, the process of homebrewing, tips for making your combat go faster, all that kind of stuff that's more long format and more gameplay focused. Yeah, the the platform definitely caters to shorter form content, like you said, as I've found out. I am forever pigeonholed to <laughs> the square hole on TikTok. You have to do. And that's really funny, though, that you went viral for just rolling a dice essentially i mean yeah I, yeah it's it, not a lot different from from my no it's not yes. yeah that's no. that's why i was, <laughs> I was thinking like you can you fully relate to everything i'm saying i'm sure because like, we have a very similar follower count i believe and yeah there's those little sticks that people like a lot and uh, you know if you do it well it's it could be rewarding but my i it came for me it eventually came a point where i was like okay i don't want to roll a die forever so i'm going to try to shift back to what I was originally hoping to do. And it did it did take some work because originally my views just plummeted once I stopped doing, you know, the the D one hundred thing. And so it kind of took some retraining of the algorithm and my audience, or at least that's what I'm convincing myself it was. And also just getting better at making, you know, consumable content for for TikTok. But it's a it's a weird platform for sure. I think I'm to take some notes because like I said I have I have the one set of content that does really well and then absolutely nothing else <laughs> everything else I post is just like eh. so but yeah it, it is kind of come down to what the audience on TikTok is looking for too and I haven't quite captured that with my other stuff yet so yeah it's it's very it's very hard I what I recently reframed in my own mind and this may or may not be helpful for you or anyone listening but you know i i started to disassociate from the account personally and started to treat it more like a business which sounds really clinical but once i started kind of viewing it as like okay i'm trying to cultivate an audience and the products i'm making are the videos that i produce you know and trying to see what variables I can change each time I make a video and see whether they help or, or don't and make it kind of scientific. And it's it's been fun once I started doing it that way because I used to get really hung up if I posted a video that would tank, you know. I get frustrated because like, okay, less than half a percent of my total follower base saw this video. Like, what do followers even mean? But then eventually I started to be like, okay, it's not me personally. I mean, it may, it may have been a bad video, but I can do better and learn how to do better. So... It's, it's been a fun learning experience for sure. You don't happen to remember what video I commented on, do you? 
I'm trying to remember which one it was that caught my eye and was like, hey, we should uh, do it. Yeah, and I don't off the top of my head and scrolling through right now. I guess there's a lot it could have been at this point. I know, because after I followed you, then now I see a lot of your stuff. So I'm like, okay, I don't remember what the, what was the first one. And, you know, with both of us having follower accounts, like we do, I'm sure you have just like hundreds of notifications, like always everything is buried. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. I feel bad sometimes because I know I'll start a conversation in a comment thread or something and I'll never see it again because I, it's just, yeah, like you said, it gets buried. I, I don't remember what video it was. I know it wasn't terribly long ago that we started chatting about having me come on here, but so yeah, I'm not sure. So of of the TikTok video, so I know this is maybe a little bit different of content than my viewers are used to listening to, but for the D&D related videos that you've done, do you have any favorites that you've put together for, or, or like it's like a favorite series or something that you like to do, to, to make, to produce, publish? Yeah, so I, I would say I have a couple different video like a series that I'm I'm trying to keep alive on TikTok right now. One that's most plentiful is is definitely my like product review videos. But the one that I like doing the most, I, I have this. I've only done a couple of them, and it's it's I call it Dice Theory One Hundred and One. It's it's kind of cheesy, but I will take a certain topic related to dice and kind of talk about it and break it down into like the logic or rationale or statistics behind it. So like, for example, you know, I talk about, would you rather roll, for example, a D12, a 12 sided die or two six sided dice, you know, one D12 versus two D6, what the difference really is. Cause I think for a lot of people, if you're playing D and D or TTRPG, you have all these dice and you look at a weapon stat block and it says, okay, oh, I'm running rolling 1d8. That's cool. No problem. You don't think too much about the dice you're rolling or why you're rolling them typically. And so I like to kind of dive into that and nerd out a bit about it. And I've gotten mixed engagement. Some of them have, gotten, have done really well and people seem to like them a lot. Other ones have kind of gone under the radar a bit. But I really enjoy kind of exploring that because it's not a topic I hear discussed much on D&D channels, probably, probably because it's, it can be very dry. I try to make it engaging, but yeah, just kind of diving into like, what are our dice? Why do we use them? What's the statistics for each one? You know, why, why is one better than the other? I don't know. It's, it's very niche and very nerdy, but it's absolutely relevant <laughs> to anyone who plays D&D because it's, uh, you know, the dice tell their own story within our games and understanding how they tell that story, I think is, is kind of fun. So on that note, 2d6 versus 1d12, I will say that I prefer 2d6, and then I'd like to know what your rationale and answer is. Yeah, so I I would agree with you that 2d6 is better. The rationale, so if anyone's played like Settlers of Catan before or something like that, where you do roll dice frequently in a game and you roll more than one, you'll know and realize that, you know, when you're rolling 2d6, for example, you're going to roll a lot more in the middle range of possible values. So like you only have one combination of dice that can yield a, a 2, which is your lowest possible roll, or one combination of dice that can yield a 12, which is your highest possible roll. But you have more combinations for all the ones in between, and so you're more likely to roll in that middle of the bell curve of possible roll outcomes, which is good for consistency, and it also means that you're not going to like you know get a critical hit roll you know your your critical damage and then it just flopping you're more likely to roll in the middle but also if you look at the expected average of all of your rolls of the 2d6 it's going to be slightly higher than the 1v12 and the main reason for that is your minimum roll is two you can't roll below a two on 2d6 whereas on a d12 you can roll a one and it really boils down to that that you're going to be doing better damage overall with a 2d6 and it's more fun to roll more dice. You've also got a lot higher chance to roll a one on a one or two on a d12. Yeah, yeah, your 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 chance of rolling any number on a d12 is equal. So you're just as likely to roll, you know, a twelve as you are a one, but also you know a six or an eight or anything in the middle. And that's that's a bit of the trade-off because like with the two d6, you know, you have a chance of rolling a two, you have a chance of rolling a twelve, but they're both really low. But you're more likely to roll okay. 
which you know again when you when you start talking about it it's like okay this is this is boring why why are we talking about this but it's especially when you get into homebrewing weapons and spells and things like that and if you're working or playing in a game that has a dm who's in the homebrew world it's important to kind of respect the dice and know what you're rolling and and why you're rolling it and if it comes down to your homebrewing a weapon that you want to use as a player if you have the choice between 2d6 and 1d12 2d6 or hell do you know, 3D4, if you can do it. Try to push to push the limits. I'm your lawyer now. This I'm your dice lawyer, whoever's <laughs> listening. But, yeah. I'm a little nerdy in that way, too, because especially for looking at both homebrew and, like, game design in general, knowing what those statistics are of different combinations of dice makes a difference, right? So so what is your, your process for homebrewing, you know, say an item? Yeah, well, this is actually, it's funny you bring this up because I've been filming and editing and stuff all all day today. And I don't work on Tuesdays, so it's one of my content creation days. But so it, it depends on what I'm doing most recently. And I will have a video up on YouTube about this, I think by the end of the night. I scheduled it for, I think, seven o'clock. But I recently have been playing Elden Ring, the Dark Souls follower. And I've never played a game like that before. I've never played like a Dark Souls game because they usually kick my ass and this one still does. But I've been playing that and it's been such a goldmine for inspiration for stuff that you could port over to D&D just from enemies because they're all so wild and scary, but also weapons. So anyway, there's one weapon in that game that's basically a dragon attached to your arm that can breathe fire, but also you can basically bite people with it. And I was like, okay, that's badass. And that's just like super, <laughs> I mean, a dragon strapped to your arm, what else do you need? You know, that's, <laughs> that's the end goal. So I kind of made that a little project and I made that into a homebrew weapon. And so my first, or my process really looks like, you know, okay, what do I want this item or spell or whatever? In this case, we'll say item. What do I want it to be able to do? I want it to breathe fire. I also want it to be able to bite people, but also has to be believable in the world you know so like with that one canonically it's not something you slip on your hand it's something that you cut off your arm and attach a dragon head to your arm instead and so what i first when i realized that you know the first thing i do is where is there precedent for this where can i borrow from from something that's already you know established and balanced and so like with this dragon head attached to your arm i look at the hand of vecna which is a you know a old D&D magic item, and it has a set of rules already for that, where you do have to cut off your arm and attach the hand to it. And so I started borrowing from that. And then now that you have a dragon head, well, I have a couple places I can borrow from, and I could borrow from an actual dragon stat block, or I can also borrow from the dragonborn race. And so I start picking through and adding stuff together, kind of hodgepodging from pre-existing stuff where I can. And then from there, once I have everything together, I'll look back and kind of evaluate whether it's something that would break the action economy, that would break your damage output, that would otherwise unbalance the game. And if it does, then I start putting in countermeasures and balancing it as best as I can. Yeah, that makes makes sense. sense Yeah, I think one of the recommendations I've always seen is to just, like you said, take something that already exists in the game and just adapt that or start mm-hmm. start with that as a base because then you kind of have a, a gauge for like how strong is this and yeah. what should the damage output of something at this level look like, right? Or what kind yeah, of effects exactly. are, you know, this spell slot worth and then going from there. And then obviously you have a little bit of playtesting and, and tweaking if sometimes things are just absolutely broken when you play them out in ways that you didn't expect but yeah um, yeah you can more or less get it down to what kind of the dnd designers were also thinking as well so exactly exactly and do you have any favorite homebrew monsters that you've done let's see homebrew monsters trying to think i made one i don't remember if i put it in my homebrewery page or not i'm trying to remember what I remember spending some time on one, and I don't remember what campaign it was for. So give me one second. I'm trying to see if I have it tucked away somewhere. Oh, no, yes, I, I do. It was a project I was working on when I first started on TikTok, actually. I don't know if you're familiar with the Brandon Sanderson books, Mistborn or not. It's a, like a fantasy series. 
I know of, of them. I have not read. I have not read them, but I know of them. Sure. Yeah. Cool. So it's they're absolutely worth reading. And if anyone's listening, you know, if you have, if you're a DM or want to be a DM and want some inspiration for like what a setting can be like, any of Brandon Sanderson's books are great, but Mistborn is awesome. But anyway, the the to to sum it up really quickly, basically, you know. Within that world, different people have different powers based on what basically boils down to genetics, I guess. They're able to use different metals and use those metals to channel basically magic powers. And so like there's one subsection of people who are able to push on metal, which sounds like kind of weird, but in the universe and in, in Brandon Sanderson's world, they would take coins and shoot them out of their hands, basically, and use those as weapons. And which I thought was super cool and a, a very you know simple one. And there's a lot of it, it's a huge, huge magic system he has built out. But I took that one and they call those guys coin shots, people who fight with coins. And I was like, that seems like a really cool D and D stat block. So I built out a homebrew creature, humanoid, called the Coin Shot, and I went through and did exactly what you and I were just talking about. I borrowed from other stat blocks that I thought were similar enough or that had similar elements to form kind of the base for it. And then I had to really homebrew some special abilities into it. And it was a lot of fun. I, I used it in one of my campaigns as a kind of an interesting, an interesting NPC. They had to fight and it added a new dynamic. So it was, it was cool. I liked it a lot. I, I, Brandon, this is not the first time that Brandon Sanderson has come up, so I really need to get on <laughs> reading those books. And that sounds like a really fun enemy to encounter as well, or even just NPC in general, having people of that nature would just be interesting. I like that. Yeah, it was a lot of fun because, you know, like I said before, it, it has to be consistent within the world. So if you have, like with this this creature I built, uh, he shoots coins because he's able to push on metal. Well, that also means he should he or she should be able to affect any metal on the bodies of you know, the players, for example, or the or the weapons that they hold. So, like he had an ability, I think, to like disarm people after a strength or excuse me, an athletics contest, and you know was able to kind of resist certain damage from from metal strikes and things like that by pushing against it and whatnot. It was, it was it was a lot of fun. It sounds really cool. Now it's got my gears spinning on what kind of things that you could do. For sure, it's it's that's. I guess really sums down the question is when it comes to homebrewing is like finding inspiration and then just running with it, you know, piecing it together and then polishing it off. Let's see. I love talking homebrew. You've talked about <clears throat> Brandon Sanderson's books. I'm kind of looking at my list of questions here again to see what. Yeah, that, that's fine. Is there anything? Is there anything specific that you would like to talk about, or are particular? If I could talk. Are there any like specific <laughs> things within DMing that you're particularly passionate about? Oh, that's that's hard. I mean, off the top of my head, no. I mean, I, I love you know all the aspects of it. I guess the issue is like any topic we we start talking about, we could talk about for a long time. I'm sure. Yeah. So I mean, not not necessarily. I, I've I've enjoyed what we've been talking about so far. I love I love homebrewing. It ties into how we talked about before, like the homebrew setting versus a published setting yeah i don't know there's there's a lot of rabbit holes that could go down okay so i had a question and then i forgot it and i remembered it now so with that coin shot that you introduced have you and in your kind of homebrew setting and campaign have you changed or kind of reinforced or made decisions about how magic works in that setting then since you've made some creatures or some some characters that maybe interact with it differently than like a traditional D character yeah, so you're hitting on like the scariest of slippery slopes because I mean, when you introduce a creature or a, you know an NPC like the coin shot that's able to affect metal specifically, it kind of indicates what you're talking about is it's a broader magic system. And in the world that I actually put this one into, I wrote it off to like a wild magic effect or something that they were just unique in their ability to do that. And it was like an altered spell, essentially. But it did call to me to kind of build out a, this kind of magic system or, or set of, of magical abilities and spells and things. Within the Mistborn world, it's called Allomancy. And it's, it comes down to using these different metal alloys. That's why it's called Allomancy. But 
I mean, that alone is like a month's worth of homebrew, which would be so fun to do is build out a, a full Alamancy, like, you know, source book, because you get people who can push metal, but people who can pull metal. You've got people who can strengthen themselves, who can enhance their senses. I, I did one of those as well. They did a, they're called a tin eye because they burn tin and they basically can hear, feel, smell, see everything so much better. Which is which is a fun thing for for D and D as well because you know you can get your perception investigation checks up and it, it op- opens up a lot of a lot of doors. But yeah, long short short answer to what was becoming a long answer, but to your short question is, I have not, but it's been something I've been drawn to do for sure. You know, is is expanding that system and changing the magic system by introducing this home. One of the questions that I ask occasionally is what. Uh... If you could have any book created, what book would that be? And I have a feeling that it would be that homebrew setting book. Yeah. You. Oh, you mean like like D and D book created? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like if yeah, you could yeah. just have any book just instantly written that you could just pick up off the shelf, you know, yeah. what would you put um, in it? Or uh, yeah, but without a doubt, having a Mistborn book or like source book because I mean you have to stop me because I don't want to go too much into this. But, you know, within Mistborn, there's like, there's Allomancy, but there's also these other ones. And please, whoever, if anyone's listening who knows this better than I do, it's been a few years since I've read the books. But there's one that basically people draw power from metals. There's one where they draw power from blood. And there's another one, or I'm going to butcher it. I'm going to stop stop talking because I'm going to butcher it. But there's basically three different magic systems that all work differently and provide different powers. And it, it is an absolute goldmine for a D&D source book. And there's all these creatures and, and characters that would be so, so fun to play with. So yeah, that would, that would be great. If I walked into a game store and saw that, I would just buy it, all of them right away. <laughs> right. So you mentioned that you have a campaign where your players are going up against God, essentially. Yeah. Yes. How has that game gone in terms of like leveling the characters and kind of what has mm-hmm. that experience been of kind of higher level play? I'm actually really glad you asked that because I've done a couple of experimental things in this campaign that have worked out really nicely and that my players have really enjoyed because essentially the campaign started with them being a group of demon hunters in this world that was being invaded by demons. And, you know, one thing led to another and, you know, most recently they're, they're fighting a a rogue god in the celestial plane. But for the course that they were on, they knew and I knew that they'd be fighting some really powerful demons and gods and other things as time went on. And we, we one of our earlier boss battles was like terrifying because they came very close to a total party kill, which was which I love. I, I love not killing them but getting really close to it because then when they do get stronger, they can feel that, you know. But to get back to your original question, there came a time where I needed them to be several levels higher than they were in order to handle what they were about to do. And essentially, they got to this point where they met this old wise man, <laughs> Deckard Kane sort of dude, who was very familiar with the people they were fighting, but also himself was this very old, very powerful hero. And so what we did was we took, in-game, we took, I think it was two weeks, and they spent two weeks on this island with this old with this old guy. And it, it, within this main setting, each of the three players we have kind of parallel these old forgotten heroes who who died hundreds of years ago, but who were like have in leg, who who were legendary in stature. And this old man was familiar with those heroes, and so he's able to teach our players some of their techniques. And so what we did is we had a montage, we had a training montage, and it was a lot of fun. So we we spent a week in game, and we went. I went from player to player, and I had them make a series of roles, basically to see how well they can improve at these different skills they're getting taught and that they were getting taught. And in this context, I was actually giving each of them. A, a minor ability from another class to kind of beef them up. And the, depending on how well they roll during this montage, depend, excuse me, I am stumbling so bad. Depending on how well they rolled, they would gain more or less use of these other class abilities. But also at the end of this training montage, I had them level up, I think twice to kind of beef them forward. But it was a lot of fun for role play purposes. We even had like... <laughs> Our players would choose a song on Spotify that we would have as our montage song in the background while we were 
walking through the uh, the training. And it was a lot of fun, but that was a nice way to get them leveled up quickly in a somewhat organic way and also introduce some other uh, abilities that I was trying to slip into their belts so they could use against these high-level bosses that were coming around the corner. Yeah, I like that so, as opposed to just uh, like, okay, we're here. You guys level up to twice, you know. Yeah, yeah. Pick, it, it was pick, pick your spells. <laughs> and it worked out well. You know, you can always adapt this to different campaigns, but it worked out well because this this old man that they who trained them, they had he had been their goal to find for several sessions. So they were working towards getting to where he was. And so when they finally got there, he re revealed all these great truths about these, you know, about just a lot of a lot of important campaign lore, but it felt right. Excuse me, it felt right and meaningful for him to be able to provide that training for them. And those level jumps felt fitting. They didn't seem forced. And my players really, really enjoyed it as well. I mean, who, who wouldn't leveling up twice? But... <laughs> yeah, sometimes it feels like you can't, you can't level fast enough. So getting two yeah. in one shot—that's pretty, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, um, and how, how, <clears throat> especially with adding extra class abilities and stuff to the players, does how do like combats and stuff go kind of after that? Does that get to be a slog sometimes, or have you found ways to mitigate that? So. When I was adding those to the players, I tried to, it, the intention was to balance the party a bit because we didn't really have a proper healer, for example. And so I gave them all abilities that could either mitigate damage or like, for example, I gave, we had a blood hunter and I gave him the ability to use uncanny dodge and, but he can only use it a certain number of times per day. And that number was based on how well he rolled during his montage. And he had like, I think he was doing like dexterity checks or something when he was doing the montage. And then I gave our Warlock the ability to do Chronal Shift, which is a, I think it's Unearthed Arcana, actually. I don't remember if they put it into Tasha's or something, but it's a Chronergy Wizard, time manipulation, essentially allowing them to re-roll or force a re-roll of an ability check or an attack roll or saving throw. They didn't roll very well during their montage. They only do it once per day. And then our Fighter, he got something else, and I forget what I gave him off the top of my head, but I tried to keep it as balanced as possible. And it was more of something they had in their back pocket, almost like a feat they could use that didn't completely alter the dynamic or, or the balance of their characters. But it was more of something to help in combat, especially when I was about to throw some really heavy hitters at them. But no, it, it didn't It didn't slog it down or anything, at least not, not so far. It's only been a couple of sessions since we've done that, but the combat so far, they've been able to use them to pretty good effect, which was which was very pleasing for me. What level are they at currently? Currently, they're level 12. Well, this, is, this might lead to another conversation, but usually I never have any of my characters or player characters be out of step level-wise, but one of them is actually level 13, two of them are level 12, and that was the result of another kind of trial they went through, I guess, with this other god. It was a series of... Essentially, it was this setup where they wanted to enter into this, this goddess's domain. And she was the goddess of like fortune, I think. And they passed through these series of rooms. And in each room, they could take what was in the room and then be by the goddess. Or they could proceed to the next room knowing they could never get that thing again. So like one room, for example, allowed them to increase their con score by two permanently if they wanted. And they could take that. They wouldn't know it was in the future rooms if they did. And so it was, it was a very, it definitely messed with their minds a lot, which was a lot of fun. But one of the characters had an opportunity. They, they walked into a room and they saw an older, wiser version of themselves. And I presented them with the feeling that they could kill their future selves and gain some of their knowledge or they can move to the next room. And this character killed their future self and as a result gained a level. But it will result in their player eventually dying if they're not killed otherwise. They don't know that though. The spoilers. Yeah. So I'll <laughs> well, I mean they, they they should assume that. They don't know when the spoilers for that player. That's a very interesting kind of encounter. So I assume that you have like multiple rooms with kind of gradually increasing rewards essentially pretty then... basically so and th this was something i i borrowed and tweaked a bit from i think i found it on like rd and d one of the dnd reddit pages it was a concept i had seen presented i couldn't tell you who it was or where it was but i 
it, it was that same idea where you could you go into one area, you have this reward, this boon that you could take, but you don't know what comes next and you never will if you don't go. And I love that. And I tweaked some of them because they didn't make too much sense for what we were doing. But yeah, they started off pretty mild where like one of them you got you know, advantage on charisma checks forever or something like that. And one of them was a con thing. One of them was a strength. One of them that I was unsure about, and I'm still unsure whether it was good to put it in there because I think it actually, after I did it, I thought that may have been, I think it was too, <laughs> too powerful. But one of the abilities was, or in our fighter took it, was they can use an action to roll one of their hit die and get their HP back. Not all of them. They can't do like a full short rest, but they can do one hit die like in the middle of combat if they need to and kind of heal themselves. But it, it made sense for the party dynamics since there wasn't a healer that he took that. And then what they didn't know, they never got to this room. The last room was a deck of many things. And it was, it was progressively better until that room. And that room was where it could either get really good or really bad, you know, should they have chosen to draw. But they never did, so we'll never know. I was going to ask, I've heard of, not in D&D, but scenarios like that, more of like a thought puzzle. Mm -hmm. And then how far do you go before you hit the dud, essentially? So I, I like the deck of many things at the end. As a, I mean, it could be could be really good, but you could, could die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. It's, that's, I, I love that item. I have, I've only put it in my game once, and it was that time, and I never got to interact with it because I'm terrified of it. Granted, I did name my channel basically after it, but... It is. It felt right having that be the end, where it's like, okay, you waited to the very end, and now, like you said, it could be really good, or you could die or get imprisoned in an interdimensional gym or something. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, we're getting about to time, I think. Totally. So, is there anything else you'd like to say before we sign off? Otherwise, now would be a great time to plug your channel and all of your socials. Yeah, no, I, I don't think I have anything else to say. I appreciate you having me on and reaching out to get me on here. I know I'm, I'm a very rambly dude, so I hope you do okay with the audio. But yeah, feel free if you guys are on TikTok. You can always follow me. It's at Deck of DM Things. And if you search that, you should have no problem finding me. And then through my TikTok, you can find my YouTube, or you can also do the same thing. Search me on, on YouTube, Deck of DM Things, and put some underscores in there to make sure you find it. And yeah, otherwise, no, this has been fun. I, I appreciate you having me, man.